Uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, the passage is 1 Kings 8, verses 10 through 21, and then 37 through 40. Um, and when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Verse 37 through 40. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands towards this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. All right, people, I got the real stool today. This is just a real family chat. Last week was kind of a pretend family chat, but today we're having a real family chat. So how's everybody doing? Remember, we're good? It's good? Okay. I have five things I want to uh, talk about today, and I've kind of, they've been kind of building up. And uh, the first three are going to be quick, but the last two I uh, want to make sure I uh, give uh, information for you guys on. And uh, so here are the kind of three quick ones. So let me just reaffirm getting the Calvary app. So, so some of you um, have already done that, and that's fantastic. Uh, some of you maybe haven't done that yet. This is, this is the new welcome register for us. And I know some of you, you didn't sign the welcome register. Like you were, like in principle, you're like, I will, not, I will not sign the welcome register. It's fine. And you just expected that we should know that you were here. Well, now, listen, can we meet in the middle? We can't know that you're here when you're not actually here unless you're signing the Calvary app. So sign the Calvary app. And whether you have a prayer request or not, it's really helpful for us to even know who is still part of the church. Uh, it's been five months since we've all been together as a whole congregation regularly every Sunday. And so it's really important for us as we're looking to care for you all to not just kind of shoot in the dark. So get the Calvary app, and then every week uh, during our announcement time when we ask you to sign in, it'll be really helpful for us if you sign in. Not because we're trying to check up on you, but because we're trying to check up on you, actually. Uh, we care about you, and we love you, and we want to make sure that we're caring for you properly. So we just need to know that you exist and that you're still with us. So get the Calvary app. Please make use of that. That would be super helpful for us as we're trying to care for you. I sent an email uh, mid-last week saying that we're moving the Calvary uh, webinar on how to spiritually survive the global pandemic to not tonight, but to next Sunday. So that, if you miss that, we're still doing that. It's not tonight. It's going to be next Sunday. And uh, we've been kind of brainstorming a bit about how best to do that. And we're going to have, um, I think we're going to, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of serve as the host for that. And then I'll have some of the other staff join me. But we want to talk through um, if you got families, uh, if you're a family with small children, what are some kind of some tips, practical steps for you? Maybe families with students, uh, if you're a single adult or just kind of general adults. So we want to kind of break it down into kind of categories and stages of life to kind of help you think through uh, ways that you can continue to grow spiritually throughout this year. So that's next Sunday uh, at 7 p.m. Watch for that. 
And that'll be recorded, of course, so if you're not able to make it, make sure you uh, follow the recording. And then I announced this last week, we're going to be doing communion again, starting our first Sundays of the month, and that will start next Sunday. So if you're here with us uh, live in person next Sunday, then we will have that arranged for you. We'll have actually pre-packaged cups, and you'll pick those up on your way in. If you're not with us live, uh, then we still want you to participate with us as well. So let me encourage you, if you have some time this week, uh, to do a little bit of shopping, to get out and uh, pick up some uh, some unleavened bread or any kind of bread really, but unleavened bread is the kind of our tradition here at Calvary, and then just a little bit of grape juice, and uh, we would love for you to participate as well watching from home. So as the service starts next week, just have those at hand near you as you're watching the service from home, or if you're watching together with a, a small group, uh, have those ready at hand as well. So um, that will be next week. All right, now on to a couple more uh, uh, bigger, uh, bigger items. Um, we are going to be searching for a full-time worship pastor, and I want to make sure that you guys all heard that and announced it here to our folks uh, uh, and following on the live stream. Back, uh, to get a little bit of history on this, is uh, Josh Cater, our worship pastor. Uh, we hired him. He was full-time, and then uh, he asked us at some point if he could go part-time. That worked out for us because uh, financially we were at a place where we needed to constrict the budget a bit, and so he went part-time for a season. Uh, And then after a while, he determined that it just was not working for him to do part-time, and he needed a full-time job, but we didn't have the finances for full-time, and so he uh, left, and he took a new job uh, at a new church doing full-time. And at that time, we hired Chris Hauser, and he came in part-time to work, and that worked out for us because he was already here, he was engaged in the church, and he was willing to work part-time, which is what we had the finances for at the time. And so Chris and I agreed that we were going to give it a year, see how we were doing, how it worked for him to add part-time onto his already existing full-time schedule teaching at Concordia, and how it was going to work for us as a church. Is, is part-time going to work for us? How do we feel about part-time? And uh, so we, we can give it a year. And so this is coming up on that year, and for the past probably two or three months, I've been praying quite a bit and just trying to seek the Lord, like what does the Lord have for us as it relates to worship? And Chris and I have been talking back and forth over that time as well, and of course been talking Uh, with the elders. And after prayerful consideration, it just came to the conviction that we as a church, we just need to move in the direction of a full-time worship pastor. So uh, hands off uh, to Chris, has done a fantastic job this past year. And if you, absolutely, absolutely. And if you know how much work has gone in to this past five months to getting the live stream going, he hasn't been working part-time, which is part of the reality, that we, we just probably need a full-time worship pastor. And uh, so he's done a fantastic job, very grateful for him. He's going to continue on in his role that he's currently doing, and he'll just continue part-time. I imagine these kind of searches can take anywhere from you know two or three months to a whole year to find somebody uh, when you're trying to hire someone in this kind of a position. So Chris is going to continue on and continue giving leadership. So pray for us as a congregation and pray for me and for the eldership as we really begin to think about who it is that the Lord has for us to lead us uh, full-time. We, wanna, we want to be able to come together and in all the ways that God would allow for us to worship Him uh, with joy and reverence. So pray that God would lead us uh, into that. And then the last thing that I have here on my list is diadrominous fish. Are you familiar with diadrominous fish? Diadrominous fish, for those that don't know, and there might be a few of you who don't know about diadrominous fish, these are the kind of fish that live in both salt water and in fresh water. So they can go back and forth between the two. They, can, they kind of move back and forth at the headwaters where they can. Some diadromatous fish spend most of their life in saltwater, and they're most at home in the saltwater, but they can go into the, into the rivers, into the freshwater. And some diadromatous fish live mostly in the freshwater. They're most at home in the freshwater, but they can live and go uh, and spend time in the saltwater as well. We are like diadromatous fish in this congregation. This is something that has really been impressed upon me over the past five months, but this year in particular. Because we have, we have folks in this congregation, some who lean, as it were, right of center when it comes to politics and cultural issues. And we have some who lean, I should have gone right of center with my right hand, and we have some who lean left of center 
uh, here in our congregation. I've not taken a poll. We haven't taken a poll. But I would guess that if we were to do a poll, I would bet we are split pretty close to 50-50 on registered Democrats and Republicans. And holding together this church in the midst of the politically fraught season that we have been in, both related to the global pandemic, but also related to all the race issues, has been significantly a challenge. It's probably been the most challenging thing that I have tried to do as a pastor in all of my pastoral years. And I've been thinking that in order for us to thrive as a church and for you as individual congregants to thrive in this congregation, you have to be a diadromatous Christian. You might have a preference, kind of a, a habitat in which you normally live, and that's fine, but you do have to be able to kind of navigate back and forth in order to thrive and survive in our congregation. So I've been talking with folks on, on kind of both sides of the aisle, as it were, kind of their concerns about the, the sort of cultural landscape that we're inhabiting, not only here at Calvary, but just that our country is inhabiting as well. And um, it occurs to me that I think, and some of the people have made suggestions, that we need to have more conversation than dialogue about this, right? We can't all just kind of bury our heads in the sand and pretend that there aren't any differences amongst us, because there are differences amongst us as comes out like in our Facebook posts, right? And if we don't talk about it and learn how to live with each other, we're all going to say what we say on Facebook and then hate each other in our hearts when we come on Sunday mornings, right? So we need to learn how to live together. There is a great beauty when we can come together with our different sort of ethoses and cultural views and perspectives and political alliances, but we're united around the gospel of Jesus Christ and the worship and allegiance to our Lord. And so we need to really make sure that we have clear in our minds what the central things are, Christ and his kingdom and what he's about, and then how to live together when we have so much diversity of opinions and strong feelings about all the sort of cultural stuff that our world is feeling. All right, so we're going to be thinking about, I encourage you to pray on this, but we're going to be thinking about, I'm going to be thinking about perhaps a, a, another webinar, um, some, some venues for conversation, some dialogue, not quite sure yet all that's going to look like. But I want us to begin to think through and talk with each other and not just um, pretend that this, these uh, differences don't exist, but talk to each other with a way to get understanding and love and then also to become united in our allegiance around the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right? So those are the five things uh, that I want you to kind of take away. We're going to record this. We'll send this out via email so you can review Diadromatous Fish if you need to get a refresher on that uh, throughout the week. And uh, let me just say a quick word of prayer, and then we're going to dive in uh, to our sermon this morning. Father, we want to uh, do right by you. We want to do right by Christ, and we want to do right by his kingdom. We want to do right by each other. So Lord, give us grace as we seek uh, to inhabit uh, the kingdom of earth while living into and inhabiting uh, the kingdom of heaven. Help us to do that winsomely. Help us to do that uh, with charity. And I pray, Lord, that you would guide us and lead us uh, to your truth by your spirit. Uh, Lord, enlighten us now as we come to your word. Help us to understand what the things you would have uh, us learn and understand today as we look at Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so hopefully you still got your, your Bible out and uh, you are dialed into First uh, Kings chapter 8. This is a, a chapter that I have been ruminating in uh, for quite a bit over the past uh, probably three or four weeks. I knew this week was coming up and I was thinking I would preach here out of this passage and it's a pretty lengthy chapter. Um, and uh, there's so much good that is here in this chapter. And I would just encourage you, if you're looking for something to read in the Bible, go back and read 1 Kings chapter 8, the whole thing, beginning to end. There's just so much good that is here. We can't get to all of it, though. This is the scene when Solomon is dedicating the temple. The temple has been built in all the previous chapters. You might remember that David uh, said, I'm going to build a temple. And then God said, thanks, but no. You're not the one to build the temple. Your son Solomon is going to build the temple. And uh, so now Solomon has finished building the temple. And in chapter 8, this is like the ribbon-cutting ceremony. He is opening it up for business. And all of chapter 8 is kind of the opening ceremony of the temple. And there is so much here that is so beautiful and helpful. But we can't focus on everything just for the sake of time. And so I 
prayerfully thinking about what to focus our attention on, and I want to focus on this, what I think is a central idea in this passage, in this episode in Israel's history, the idea of God as judge. Now, for some of you, the idea of God as judge is generally positive or it's at least neutral. For others, the idea of God as judge, perhaps it's a bit triggering. It doesn't uh, conjure up warm and fuzzies in your heart. The idea, though, of God as judge is woven all throughout the Bible. It's a major theme, and there is just no getting away from it if we're going to be honest with the story that the Bible gives us about God's dealings with the world. God is the judge. So it's important to know what the Bible means, though, when it says that God is a judge. So our two texts this morning are excerpted from this scene, this opening ceremony scene of the temple, 8, 10 through 21, and then 37 through 40. Both of these coming from Solomon's prayer. He offers a dedicatory prayer when they open up the temple. So I want to look at each excerpt, each of these prayers, for help in understanding this idea of God as judge. So there are two truths, one truth from each excerpt or one, each portion of the prayer, and I'm going to going to move through each excerpt, but then I'm going to save up some application questions or thoughts for the end. So um, normally I like to do that kind of throughout, but we're, we're going to save them all up here for the end. So we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, uh, so let's just get right to it. The first thing that we learn about God as judge is that God is a judge. That's our first text from 8, 10 through 22. As I just mentioned in 1 Kings, this is the temple opening up for business. And look here back at our passages that have already been read for us here in 8, 10. When the priests came out of the holy place, they were in the holy place, they were kind of getting everything ready, they were kind of finishing all the preparations. When they came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house. This is reminiscent of when God comes down on Mount Sinai, this great cloud, and the people all back up away from the mountain that God is coming down. And as he descends amongst his people, eventually he comes and takes up residence in the tabernacle. He's doing the same here. And then look what Solomon says. He's remembering this moment too, I think, of in uh, Mount Sinai, because Solomon says in verse 12, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. When God came down from Sinai, he came down in thick darkness. And when God comes into this new temple that has been made, he comes in thick darkness. It's an it's a awe-filled and awe-full in the traditional meaning of that word. It's a, a full-of-awe moment. When God moves into the temple, no one's like running up to him and being like, hey, welcome, welcome, good to have you here. You like what we've done with the curtains? I think they're like your colors are really good. You know, no one, they're all just like backing up as God comes into the temple. And in verses 14 through 20, Solomon addresses the people. He begins then a prayer, reminding the people and also praying about their unique relationship to this awesome inspiring God, how he's brought them out of the land of Egypt, how he has sworn promises to David, how those promises have been fulfilled through Solomon, and how Solomon has made this great house that God has just come and taken residence in. And then look at verse 21. I want to focus our attention here. Solomon's in his prayer, and he says, there I have provided, he's talking about this holy place within the center of the temple, there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Solomon mentions specifically in this construction of the temple, he, he mentions specifically the ark of the covenant that's at the very center of the temple in the most holy place. And of course, in the ark of the covenant is the covenant. Moses, when he went up to the mountain on Sinai and he got the covenant from God, he brought them down on tablets of stone. And when the ark was eventually made, these two tablets of stone went into the ark of the covenant, which is why it's called the ark of the covenant. 
So the covenant sat at the very center of the temple because it sat at the center of Israel's relationship with God. It was the living heart of the people of God. It was the entire basis of their relationship with God. Contained within the covenant were the regulations and the codes of conduct with both positive and negative consequences related to Israel's adherence to these divinely given codes. Obedience to the covenant, to the codes of the covenant, would lead to blessing. Disobedience to the codes of the covenant would lead to punishment and suffering. And it was God who stood over the covenant, judging whether or not Israel's actions were sufficiently in keeping with the covenantal obligations, which is to say God was the judge of the covenant, and as such, he was the judge of Israel. So as Solomon begins his prayer, particularly the dedicatory prayer that really gets going in verses 22 and it runs all the way through 53, Solomon begins to speak of God and to God as Israel's judge. Look at verse 32. He's saying, God, if we come to you and we need your help, verse 32, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants. We need help figuring things out between us. Then we appeal to you as the judge to come and to sort out our situation. But then look what he says here in verse 33. He says, when your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you. In other words, because we have sinned against you, we've broken covenant, you have brought judgment upon us, and we are now defeated before our enemies. Or, verse 35, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain, because we, they, have sinned against you. God, if we break covenant, you might bring enemies upon us. If we break covenant, you might bring, you might bring uh, famine uh, upon us, drought upon us. Now look into verse 46. It's the final great covenantal curse that we've been talking about. If your people go out to battle against... No, I'm sorry, verse 46, yes. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive. So Solomon all throughout, he's, he's recognizing that God is the judge over Israel. God is the one that keeps tabs of whether or not Israel is fulfilling its obligations in the covenant. Solomon is acknowledging that Israel will rise and fall in accordance with their obedience to the covenant and that it will be God as their judge who will determine what constitutes obedience. And I think it's this reality, if you know much about Solomon, I think it's this reality that informs a reoccurring theme that we see in Solomon's book of Proverbs. He went on to write a a whole collection of sayings and Proverbs. And one of his reoccurring themes is the fear of the Lord. All throughout his collection of Proverbs, Solomon Solomon repeatedly uh, says that the Israelites should fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The wise walk in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord brings discernment. He's always talking about the fear of the Lord. And I think he means just that, fear, as in be afraid of, as in don't get on the wrong side of him. But the kind of fear that Solomon has in mind is like the kind of fear that we have of Niagara Falls, not so much the fear that we have of a tornado. Let me see if I can, I think I've used this illustration before, but let me come back to it again. Tornadoes are scary. They're scary not just because they're destructive, but because they're unpredictable. That's the problem with tornadoes. You don't, you don't know where they're going. They drop from the sky going one direction one moment, another direction the next. You're not supposed to run from a tornado because you don't know where tornadoes are going to go. You're just supposed to go and hide underground. But God's power is not like that. His power is more like Niagara Falls. The power of Niagara Falls is not less destructive than a tornado. In fact, probably it's more destructive than a tornado. But it's consistent, and it's steady, and it's predictable. You know how to get on the right side of Niagara Falls. You've ever been there as a 
tourist, you know what I'm talking about. You don't have to hide from Niagara Falls. Just don't jump underneath it or into it. You can safely, here's I think the beauty of what it means to fear something properly, you can safely glory and rejoice in the destructive power of Niagara Falls if you fear it properly. It's because you fear it properly that you don't have to be afraid of it. But if you don't fear it properly, then be afraid of it. And this is what Solomon, I think, is saying. It's the fear of the Lord that gives us freedom from having to fear the Lord. Right? These things have to be held together. That's what it's like to properly fear God as judge. It's coming to terms with God's power and then ordering your life accordingly. And when we do, our experience of God can be awe-inspiring, majestic, joy-producing, and fear-inducing all at the same time. They're all held together. And if you've been and stood at the foot of Niagara Falls or however close you can get to it, you you have a little bit of a sense of what that is like. It's awe-inspiring. It's majestic. It's joy-inducing. And it's somewhat intimidating and fear-provoking all at the same time. Solomon is calling the Israelites to properly fear God as their judge so that they can freely rejoice in Him as their God. But the idea of God as judge has fallen on hard times. I would think especially probably in the last 40 to 50 years or so in our culture. Maybe it's an idea that has fallen on hard times with you as well. Certainly our cultural moment resists the whole idea of judgment. In fact, the quickest way to get judged in our culture is to judge somebody. That's the quickest way to get judged. Judge not, judge not is our culture's favorite Bible verse, so much so that even God is judged for judging. We do not allow judgment at any cost, our culture has lost sight of God as judge. He is no longer a cosmic judge before whom we must give an account, but a friendly therapist to whom we can come for affirmation and help. God is our advisor. He's our therapist, and He is our friend. But He's not just our advisor, just our therapist, or just our friend. He is also our judge. And He is long-suffering But ere the end, he is the one who will bring order from disorder, stability from chaos. He is the one with whom we all have to do. Rendering judgments over his creation is what he has been doing all since the beginning. We've seen some of these episodes even in our story of the Bible this past year, the expulsion from Eden, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of the Canaanites, the future coming destruction of Jerusalem, and on and on it goes. The Bible is replete with God's judgments, His divine judgments. And all of those judgments that we're encountering in this story, that we see in the pages of the Old Testament, the the Apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter that these are signs foreshadowings, types and symbols of the great and final eschatological judgment that one day will come upon the whole world. The Apostle John saw a vision of this final judgment in Revelation 20. Listen to what he saw. He wrote it down. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. For his, from his presence earth and sky fled away. Sounds familiar to what we just read in 1 Kings 8, right? People fleeing back. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's the great final moment of God's eschatological judgment. Imagine for a moment that moment. When God speaks a verdict over your life, 
the final unshakable word. Not only will there be no appeal, there is no higher court of appeal. There will be no denying the truth of the verdict. What he says about you will be true. The Apostle Paul, even at one point, he said, he said I don't even judge myself. He says, I, I, I think a certain way about myself, but at the end of the day, it's what God thinks of me. He will say what is true about me. I might think I know something about me, but God will speak what is true. And imagine at that moment, you will find out what is true of you. You will in that moment find out absolutely and finally the truth of who you are. God will know it. You will know it. The whole universe will know it. And denying that God is the ultimate judge or pretending that that moment won't exist, just wishing it in a way, doesn't make it any less so. So the first truth that we learn about God being a judge is that He is indeed a judge, something that our culture, I think, has lost sight of that we need to be reminded of this morning. But it's not enough to say that God is a judge. We need to say what kind of judge He is, and this is where hope is reborn. This is where hope is reborn. The second truth we learn about God from this prayer is that He is a gracious judge. We skip forward in the Solomon's Prayer to verse 37. Let me get your attention there. Solomon is saying much of what he's been saying in the preceding verses. He's kind of saying it again another way. But he says, If there is a famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer. So he's again acknowledging if we get on the wrong side of the covenant and we invoke the covenantal curses upon us and there's all these things that happen to us. But then look what he says here in verse 8, verse 38 rather. Whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart, stretching out his hands towards this house, each knowing the affliction of his own heart. This is an idea that is echoed in Solomon's Proverbs, Proverbs 14.10, in fact. Solomon says, Each heart knows its own bitterness, and no stranger shares its joys. And Solomon was wise, and he understood that, the, that there were pains and griefs inside every human heart that no one else could fully enter into. All of us have our own hurts and our own disappointments and our own, our, own bitter, uh, our own bitter pills that we've swallowed. And we can try to talk about them, but, but no one knows them like we know them. No one can enter into those moments. No one can truly experience them like we've experienced them. No one that is except God. Because look at verse 39 as Solomon continues. He says, then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each one whose heart you know. You know the hearts according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. Every heart carries its own afflictions. No one else, Solomon says, can, can enter into its joys or to its despairs, but God can because God alone knows the afflictions of the human heart. Solomon is asking God to temper his judgment in accordance with his divine knowledge about the particularities of each person's heart and their individual afflictions. In other words, Solomon is saying, when we cry out to you, when we mess up and we cry out to you for help and we confess our sins, then please render judgment in mercy. You know our hearts, you know our frame, you know each of our afflictions, don't only judge us according to our deeds. Look into our hearts and see our afflictions, our contrition, and forgive us and have mercy on us. I'm reading a book by this, it's on political theory by a guy named Thomas Sowell. I know next to nothing about him except the parts of the book that I've read. The book is called The Quest for Cosmic Justice, and it's a pretty interesting book. I'm, I'm, I think I agree with much of it, though maybe not all of it, but regardless of that, Sowell suggests two different visions of justice that I find very relevant for what we're talking about here. He talks about cosmic justice 
And he talks about what he calls traditional justice. In traditional justice, Sowell says, there's a strict correspondence between action and reward. Everyone does the same crime, gets the same time. If a kid punches another kid in the face, he's suspended. End of story. Mitigating circumstances and contrition are irrelevant. There's no, well, this kid comes from a broken home, it's really hard, so he can hit other kids in the face. No, it's just if you do the crime, you get the time. In traditional justice, there's an inflexible iron link between our actions and the response of justice. Cosmic justice, on the other hand, in cosmic justice, the judge takes into account mitigating circumstances and the level of contrition. Not all crimes merit, then, the same punishment. The kid who has been bullied all year and finally snaps and punches his bully in the face is handled differently than the bully who routinely punches kids in the face. In cosmic justice, the link between actions and judicial response is not an iron link, but more like a, a leather cord. There is a link, but it's, it's a flexible link. Now, Sowell is not a theologian, and the book is not about God's justice, but almost as an aside, he remarks that only God can dispense cosmic justice, truly, because only God has the wisdom and capacity to know the interior of each person's heart. Only God can properly take into account all the mitigating circumstances of each individual situation. Turns out that Sowell and Solomon agree. So does Moses. The entire Mosaic covenant, of which Solomon is referring to in this whole context of his prayer, is full of judgments made in consideration of mitigating circumstances. So if you go back and you read through Exodus and Leviticus and on through Numbers, some of Numbers, you'll find all the law codes and you'll see that it is full of judgments made in light of mitigating circumstances. So for instance, there's some obvious ones, but killing someone gets handled differently depending on whether or not the assault was premeditated, self-defense, or it was accidental. Or another example, if you had an ox and the ox gored someone and killed that person, and you knew your ox had a habit of doing that, then you would get a much stiffer punishment. But if that was the first time and you had no idea that your ox was prone to gore people, then the consequences were not as severe for you. As we continue reading in the narrative portions of the Old Testament, we see this same sort of cosmic justice at work in how God treated people. Recently, we've been looking at the stories of Saul and David. It's fascinating when you put this view of justice kind of in conversation with those two stories. We looked at the life of Saul, and we saw that Saul was removed from the throne because of two particular episodes of misconduct related to the sacrifices, the religious sacrifices that were to be administered, right? And then David was not without problems either. We didn't go into all the details of David's story, but most of us know the story, right? David committed adultery. He committed murder to cover up the adultery, and then Pastor John walked us through one of David's most grievous instances of uh, numbering the men, which led to national hardship. But was David removed? He wasn't removed. And if you recall, at the very beginning, when God chose David to be the king, do you remember what he said about David? Why he picked David? He said, he said you judge by looking on the outside, but I look on the heart. And when God saw the sins of Saul, he didn't just see the sins. He looked into the heart, and he rendered judgment according to the heart, not just the bare deeds. And when he saw the misdeeds of David and the sins of David, he didn't just render judgment according to the misdeeds, but he looked into the heart. So God looks beyond the misdeeds into the heart, to the true contrition in there that is there, the mitigating circumstances that have led to the situations. God is not a traditionalist judge who has no regard for mitigating circumstances. He does not ignore our contrition and our affliction. While he measures everyone by the same standard, he takes into account the individual frailties and the limits of our circumstances 
when dispensing justice. Think of Les Mis. Most of us know the story of Les Mis. A major theme of the story is the nature of justice. If you remember the story, maybe not, I can recount the basic plot line here, but as the story opens, Jean Valjean, he's the protagonist, he's just being released from prison after 19 years of hard labor for stealing bread to feed his sister's starving family. After his release, he's forced to carry a yellow convict ticket with him wherever he goes, forever branding him as a ne'er-do-well and a convict. And so as a consequence, he's shunned. He can't find any work. In desperation, he steals silver from a friendly bishop who takes him in and gives him shelter for the night. And when he's caught by police, the bishop covers for him. It's a beautiful moment, redemptive moment. The bishop says, no, no, I gave him the silver. And in fact, John Valjean, you forgot some of it. Here, take these other pieces. You, you should have taken these as well. And so he's freed up from this moment of crime. He's humbled by the bishop's kindness. John Valjean determines to start a new life. He's going to turn over a new leaf. He tears up his convict card, breaking parole, but this gives him a chance to start a new and virtuous life. Eight years later, fast forward, he's assumed a new identity. He is uh, an upstanding, virtuous citizen. He's a wealthy factory owner. He's the mayor of a small town. But all throughout the novel, behind the scenes, Jean Valjean is being hunted by Javert, the prison warden who has been pursuing him since he broke parole. Javert is an unrelenting and hard-edged agent of traditional justice. With Javert, there can be no compromises. There are no mitigating circumstances. Contrition is irrelevant. Nothing can justify stealing, not even stealing bread to feed a starving family. And nothing can justify breaking parole, not even to start a new and virtuous life. The heart and circumstances and motives of John Valjean, prisoner number 24601, are irrelevant to Javar. Javert. Javar is a bad guy too, but that's a different story. Javert. You do the crime for Javert, you do the time. End of story. Javert is the embodiment of justice without compassion or mercy or understanding or sympathy. Javert's justice is a warped caricature of God's justice. In our text, Solomon doesn't beg for mercy before a Javert-like God. He prays for mercy to a compassionate and understanding God. Think back to Exodus 34. If you remember that passage, perhaps you do. When God gave to Moses the very covenant Solomon is thinking of here, that establishes God as judge over his people. When God is handing to Moses this very covenant, Moses asks God for his name. I got to go down, I got to talk to the people, I got to tell the people who you are. What is your name? What is the name of our God? We know you're God, but what is your name? And as God hands over the terms of the covenant that establish his role as judge over the people, he reveals his name. And do you remember what he says when he reveals his name? He says, the Lord, the Lord God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. This is the judge of the covenant. Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, who sees the afflictions of his people and renders his judgments in compassion by what he sees in each person's heart. The judge of the covenant is not Javert, Thank God, or we would all be hosed. The judge of the covenant is the Lord God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Our judge is full of mercy and compassion. He is a gracious judge. Just like a good earthly father, God's justice contains within it, contains within his judgment, Love and kindness, mercy and compassion and understanding are woven into the warp and woof of his judgment. In God, it's not as though he's Javert-like over here with his justice and then kind over here with his mercy. But these together find perfect harmony so that his justice is compassionate 
and merciful. God is not indifferent to our sin. That's why Solomon is recognizing the likelihood of punishment. Nor does he turn a blind eye. He sees all and he knows all and we cannot pull one over on him. But at the same time, because he sees all and because he knows all, he is always fair. He sees beyond the misdeed and looks into the heart and circumstances of each person. He is always willing to forgive and to heal and to redeem. So as we close this morning, let me ask you some thought questions. Think about how you relate to this idea of God as judge. Which portion of the sermon do you find you have to wrestle with more? The idea that God is a judge or the idea that God is a gracious judge? Perhaps you find your heart resisting the idea of God as judge. Perhaps you don't like the idea of God as judge because you know you're not on the right side of His judgments. His judgment won't bode well with you, and so you resist the idea at the root by denying the fact that He is the judge. Or perhaps you've drunk the Kool-Aid of our culture so deeply that you bristle at the very idea of judgment. So much so that ironically, you have set yourself up in God's place as judge, jury, and executioner of everyone who judges. The craziness of our culture. You become the very thing you dislike about God. Let me encourage you to surrender to the peace and to the joy that comes from fearing God as your judge. It is so life-giving to let God be judge. And when you let God be the judge, it frees you up to be life-giving to others. Or perhaps in the other direction, you find your heart this morning resisting the idea that God is compassionate and merciful. It's harder for you to kind of come to terms with that. God's cosmic justice is it's too messy. That's too complicated. Mitigating circumstances just muddle the water. You like the hard and inflexible link between action and consequence. It's cleaner for you. And so you judge others like Javert, and you imagine that God judges the same way. But perhaps your brittle and harsh, unrelenting judgments are crushing the people you love and are steering you into a pharisaical self-righteousness. Maybe you can't admit your sin because you don't think that the judge has mercy for your sin. Let me encourage you to surrender to the peace and joy that comes from embracing a vision of a compassionate and understanding judge. It is so life-giving to let God be gracious as a judge, and it frees you up to be life-giving to others. Whatever the case, if you struggle to think of God as judge or to think of God as a fair and compassionate judge, then be reminded this morning, either way, be reminded of the greatest moment of gracious judgment the world has ever seen, the cross. It was God who, in grace, God the judge, in grace, sent God the Son to redeem you and I from the ravages and the ruin of our sin. Just like Israel in Solomon's prayer, we break covenant again and again and bring ruin upon ourselves. But when we repent and call out for mercy, he hears our prayer with compassion and understanding. And in compassion, he extends to us the pierced hand of his son. The prophet Isaiah spoke of Jesus prophetically into the future. This is what he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. In God the Son, God the Judge heals our wounds by absorbing them into Himself. When we cry out to Him in faith and repentance, He takes the ruin of our sin upon Himself 
and He heals us. If you have not yet called out to God, your judge, for mercy and deliverance, then let me encourage you to do so. Even today, in the same pattern of Solomon's prayer, confess your sins. Acknowledge the pain and suffering it has brought to you and to those around you. Then call out to him for mercy and forgiveness that God has made available to you through the sacrifice of his son. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 1 that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We deny the reality that God is judge over us. We deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, if we come to this gracious God, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, in His justice, will come to us and redeem us from the ruins of our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us in Christ. Embrace God as your judge. Embrace Him as a gracious judge and come to Him for healing through His Son. Amen. God, I pray that you would help us to do that. We need to do it day by day, hour by hour again as we stumble and fall to keep coming back to you. The judge is the healer. We don't go to one person for judgment and another person for healing, but we, we come to you as the healing judge and God, I pray for many, for, for us who have done that and we've established that relationship with you. Help us to keep coming back to you, to living into your glorious cosmic justice, redemptive justice, and help us to extend that same justice, healing justice to others as we're able. For those, Lord, that here, maybe listening online who have never given their lives to you, have never come to terms with you as their judge, I pray that you would quicken in their heart through your spirit the desire to surrender to you as the judge, but not just the Javert-like judge, but the gracious judge who heals and forgives through the power and redemptive work of your son. Lord, make that be true in someone's life even today, we pray. In your son's name, amen.